Well, the big news is impeachment. They're impeaching Trump again. And, and you thought it would take forever. No, it's time to impeach Trump again. Okay, uh, that's this week in Sisyphus. No, that's not the right <laughs> word. Uh, this week in Common Sense, so you're Paul Jacob. We're covering the big stories of the week that appeared on thisiscommonsense.com. And uh, you want to talk about impeachment again? Well, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's funny. It didn't seem to be gone for long before all of a sudden there's a new story. And we've, you know, Trump has to be impeached. Uh, the Russians are trying to uh, influence the election again. And, and we really should, you know, uh, they, they, they had some bots that were doing stuff. Uh, I know that they spent a couple hundred thousand dollars on Facebook ads. That's been reported. Uh, maybe it was a little bit bigger than that. But it's a little silly that, you know, that we kind of pretend that somehow that was the big difference in the election. Now, it was, it was the type of election in 2016. And uh, it kind of sort of promises to maybe be that same type of election in 2020. But it was the type of election where little things could make a big difference in Michigan or Pennsylvania or Wisconsin. Uh, but, you know, this whole idea that somehow somebody stole this election, that Hillary Clinton did not lose it on her own, is, I think, fundamentally false. Almost anything that happened, if the Democrats would have had a candidate that wasn't Hillary Clinton, I think they would have won against Donald Trump, who had huge negatives, who still has huge negatives, and who someone asked me to predict what was going to happen in 2020. And I said, I can guess, I can't predict. <clears throat> but my guess is that the power of incumbency, plus the bigger factor of Democrats not presenting an alternative that's not more scary is likely to lead to Donald Trump being reelected. A, a president who's never had a majority support in the country getting reelected. Of course, Bill Clinton got elected to two terms. He never got 50% uh, of the vote plus one. So, and, and the polls showed he was a pretty popular president, you know, up and down, but throughout his, his time, uh, was largely a popular president. Anyway, we, we had a little bit of fun on Friday to talk about the fact that this whole push for impeachment and, uh, you know, that, that we found more evidence and more evidence by, by Adam Schiff and his committee, which, of course, told us early on they had, they'd seen the evidence. They'd seen the evidence of Russian collusion with the Trump campaign, the Trump campaign conspiring with the Russians to alter the outcome. And then, of course, when the Mueller report drops, there's no collusion. In fact, that, that was when they started trying, oh, it's not collusion, it's conspiracy. Because, of course, for months they had been talking about collusion, and there was none. Of course, there was no conspiracy either. But at least that's what they found. And and so it's it's sort of interesting that we missed this story when it happened. There's a lot going on in this crazy world. And by the time we got to the story, it had already kind of worked itself out. So I'm sure, you know, we had the, the Mueller report that was kind of impeachment one. And then we had the Ukraine phone call and that was impeachment two. 
and here came impeachment three, which was just a blip. And uh, who knows what will be impeachment number four, but uh, stay tuned. Nicely, you didn't begin the week with politics as such. Yes, we began the week talking about a really neat story. And, uh, and I've debated some people since then. I posted on Facebook and, and talking about race and people of color and so on, because one of the points I made in this, in this piece is that I don't like the term people of color. And it's not so much that I, that I you know, argue somehow these aren't people and they aren't uh, of color. Uh, what I argue is that people who are called white aren't white. But if they were, white is still a color and they should be included in people of color. But, but white people aren't white, yellow people aren't yellow, black people aren't black, red people aren't red. We've created this whole big thing on race and have used it in draconian, evil, terrible ways throughout history. But we seem to want to bring it back now, I think, and, and create new problems. And, and it's, not, it's not okay to ignore the past, to ignore the harms that have befallen people uh, who happen to be called black or happen to be Hispanic or, or you know, the terrible Chinese exclusion laws and different things that have happened. But the, the point I'm making is, it seems like people of color is a term to separate whites and to create a divide. And I think solving the problem of racism is, is not dividing. It's, it's not calling everybody out and dividing them by race because most of the crimes that have been committed by government or by private individuals against people of different races, they have not been committed by all white people in unison saying, hey, let's do this. Let's have a racist system. Years ago, I remember seeing, reading in the paper after an election that in Alabama, they had voted to end their law against interracial marriage. And of course, it was unconstitutional, couldn't be enforced for, for decades, you know, be, but it was still on the books. And they voted overwhelmingly, of course, to, to get rid of it. But the fact that there was this law just struck me as strange at first. And I thought, you know, why would, why would you pass a law? You know, if there's all this hatred between the races, why would you pass a law saying people who hate each other can't get married? And of course, I can make a lot of jokes about marriage and people hating each other. I'm not going to do it. Oh, it's so tempting. But it's because people of different races didn't hate each other. They were likely to fall in love with each other. And that's why they passed a law to stop it. And so, you know, I, I just think we have to remember that, that throughout all of history, there have been good people who were not racist and who loved other people whose skin colors were very different. Um, it's a beautiful world out there. And one of the reasons I wanted to do this commentary and kind of slapped my idea about people of color at the, on the end of it is that this uh, girl is nine years old, Bellin Woodard, and, uh, and she's nine years old, she goes to school, and she gets a little bit uncomfortable, uh, which is the word her mother used, 
because they're asking her to pass the skin color crayon to the, the kid. She's the only black kid in her third grade class in Loudoun County, Virginia, not far from me. And so she, you know, she comes home and she talks to her mom and says, you know, and, and the word she used was disincluded. It made her feel disincluded. And that's why I thought of people of color because it makes me feel disincluded. I kind of want to be with all the cool kids. And, and that's the kind of thing that, that makes you feel like you're not part of the people of color. Even though you can see I've got all kinds of weird colors, different colors. But she, her mother said, why don't you just hand them the brown crayon and say, here's skin color. Maybe it, it'd make them realize, hey, I'm, I'm brown skinned. You're peach skinned. That's why you want the peach crayon. I know that, but let's recognize the skin color. And this nine-year-old said, no, Ma, I have, I think, a better idea, which is I'm going to say, hey, what skin color do you want? And the reason I like so much the, how she said that is it was an appreciation for the beauty of people all over this world. I mean, my view is I've always kind of been pro-world, pro-immigration. Um, I look, we're all one big family. And part of the reason is we've discussed before, I think, uh, is otherwise, I, I, my, my dad was Irish. My mom was uh, majority English, a little Irish in there too, maybe some Scottish. Um, and so if we don't have immigration, if we don't ever meet up with people from France or from, you know, the, uh, the East or from the Middle East or, or Pakistan, you know, uh, China, what the heck do we eat? We have terrible food. And thank goodness we live in a world in which we can borrow food from all over the world and see what they're eating and say, hey, I want some of that too. And of course, when you look around the world, you see all kinds of different people. We're so much the same. But one of the beauties is that we have all kinds of different colors. And boy, it's, it's just, it's a beautiful world. And in just a very simple and subtle way, this nine-year-old captured that. And I think we need to celebrate all of our colors. And this doesn't mean that don't talk about slavery, don't talk about Jim Crow, don't talk about institutional racism that exists right now here today, which is the most important thing, to talk about of all those. The past is the past. Let's know it. But let's talk about what's happening here today that is racist. And the most racist thing that I have heard, uh, the most serious racist thing that is has been taking place is the stop and frisk. And not that there aren't other criminal justice things that are even maybe more serious uh, on, on a grand scale. But the stop and frisk that we talked about last week is so problematic because the way Michael Bloomberg talked about it, he said, look, these people 
meaning the fact that more African-American than white people percentage-wise committed crimes, and more men, like you and I, Tim, commit crimes than women, and more young people commit crimes, percentage-wise in all cases, than older people, meant that you could target people who were 100% innocent and you had absolutely no reason to target because of their age and their sex and their race. And that is so ugly. And, and here's then the, uh, the other ugly part of that is that so many people said, yeah, but it, it cut down on crime. Well, you know, we could just, we could pick the worst crime areas and we could, you know, we could have drive-by shootings and we could, you know, uh, destroy the areas in some crazy way. And, and that would maybe cut down on crime too, but it would be a human rights problem. It would be a crime against humanity. And stop and frisk probably doesn't rise to the level of crime against humanity in, in our heads but it is just a serious crime. And Mr. Bloomberg has not really spoken to it in keeping with how serious it is. He made a conscious decision to target people on the basis, on, on basis that you cannot target in a country that has any respect for the individual. If you wanna live in a country where everything's about race, well then you could somehow justify that completely obnoxious, horrible, racist policy. But if you believe in individual freedom, you could never countenance what he did, no matter how much it helped on crime, because you cannot go and beat up innocent people to get to the guilty. Um, and the reason I, I make that big tangent uh, and, and maybe rain a little bit on Bell and Woodard's uh, uh, parade is because those are the two ends of the spectrum in my mind. We have a nine-year-old who sees the beauty of her, her classmates as well as herself and wants to celebrate it all and wants them to celebrate her skin color too, but is totally open to that. And then we have a billionaire, a very sophisticated, bright, guy who's gotten elected to office, who's running for president of the United States, who thinks you can just use shorthand racism and throw all kinds of young black males up against a wall and frisk them. They actually had the word flesh on crayons when we were little kids. It was the peach color. At some point, they changed it to peach, I believe. It does seem odd that this has actually become an issue or is still an issue somewhere in the United States. Well, one of the things that Bellin did was to create this kit that had, you know, more skin colors, crayons that, that fit that. And I don't say crayons because I say crayons because I grew up in this area in New Jersey where that's what we say. That's just a little aside. But, but it, you know, she's doing a real service for people to, to see that and, and, and celebrate it. And I, I think we have to deal with racism, but we have to do it in a way that includes everybody. If, if we decide we want to attack racism by creating a split, 
between white people, so-called white people, and everybody else, it's not going to be healthy for this country. It's going to create, I think, a backlash and not progress. We will go back. And, uh, and that's, it's stupid. It's stupid, especially in a time in which I think, uh, not that racism doesn't still exist, but there's a real desire, I think, for people to move beyond that. Uh, you know, people are, are giving some thoughts to their own actions, their own thought processes. Uh, I think there's some real reflection, and there has been for years. We've made real progress. We came from a really ugly place. You know, I, I moved from New Jersey uh, to Arkansas in 1968 when I was eight years old. And, uh, and I remember just being shocked and scared because of the racism. We live in a much better world, but that's no reason we can't make it better and better and better. But making it better is not just attacking people because of their race or separating people because of their race. It's finding a way to pull us all together and to celebrate our differences because they're wonderful. Uh, you mentioned 1968. Back in 1968, a popular term was colored people. And this was used by whites of non-whites, but mainly of black people, we call black people. If you say colored people now, you are committing a sin, a, a, a major faux pas. And, and, uh, but people of color is good. Now, as an editor, someone who messes with words for a living, I must say that the distinction between colored people and people of color is somewhat lost on me. I mean, I, they're, the same, they're the same concept, it's just a different way of saying the same thing. And it's interesting that we have terms of art, and that's what it's often called, the term of art, when you make a big deal out of a small difference. This is the way we're saying that. And we now have people of color is, is the appropriate term, and colored people is the term of opprobrium. And right. this is all, but it is kind of amusing to me also that these terms of art uh, about race are once again being dredged up in the subject of crayons or crayon? I don't know how you pronounce it. I can't say it. Like I say crayons, which doesn't okay. make any sense because yeah. that's not how you say the word, but I, that's how I say it. That's how I've always said it. And tomorrow I'm going to say it that way again. Okay. Well, crayons, as I understand them, <laughs> uh, is I, I'm, I'm amused because those are terms, those are art products, these are art instruments. And the terms of art of color are still in the news, are still being fought over, and they're being fought over in terms of art instruments. A much better art instrument, I think, would be Photoshop or some uh, image program. You can't use a black color to put it, make a black person, as you were suggesting earlier, and you don't really use a white color to make white people. And it turns out you don't use any one color if you are trying to represent a the, the skin tones of, a, of, a, of an actual person. Because it turns out that in any picture, of uh, uh, any photograph of a person, it's actually all quite blotchy and they work together impressionistically to make a color that yes. isn't there in any particular moment. It actually, it's an emergent property. If you select you know, a picture of you to get that color and I selected it you know, from, a, from one point in your face, it would be not your color. Right. And I move, I move one pixel over and get another pixel color and it's still not your color. Because it's all those pixels together that exactly. That it's another way of looking at it is that there isn't really about one color; it's about the effect of many colors, and really that's actually what all race is about too. Because whatever statistical observations we make about people of one race rather than another, 
all these things overlap. We have more in common than we have in difference. And that's actually a lesson we should probably think about more often. Yes, and, and as you mentioned, you know, colored people, you notice how nobody says that anymore because people don't, they, they react very negatively to it. And so people don't want to offend, and, and that's good. But that term was used to separate non-whites by whites, I think, who wanted to make that separation in the same way that people of color, um, which is not a, it's not a terrible thing to say. My concern is that it is used almost as a battering ram to say white people not wanted you're not part of us and to separate and and i didn't like it before i wasn't a fan of slavery wasn't a fan of jim crow i'm not a fan of racism of, of any kind i am catholic in the sense of being universal i don't like you any better because you live next door to me then i would like somebody who lives in pakistan or china or in in Ghana, they have they're every bit uh, uh, the same as a human being as you are. The fact that I share your religion or your race or your skin tone, you know, at least most of the blotches, uh, is is not a big deal. At the same time, it is important. I don't want people to get the message that somehow we can just skip over. I, if I were to give advice to any group that had been discriminated against, oppressed, and increasingly the term is oppressed, um, not discriminated against, it's oppression throughout our system. But if you have been uh, oppressed, the best thing you can probably do is to get over it and move on with your life. If you have been an oppressor, don't move on so quickly because you need to think about what you've done. But if you're a white person, it doesn't mean you're an oppressor. I've, I've never supported these things, 99.9%, probably not accurate there, but a huge, huge percentage of people who are deemed white have never been part of a racist effort to you know uh to hold people down and oppress them and so it's it's not right to treat people like oppressors and it messes up the whole thing of what i think most people who want to talk about race want to do which is end racism it it kind of recreates it and that's my concern so if you are a white person or peach then I think it probably behooves you to think about these things, not so much because you did anything, but to think about how society was structured and how it needs to be structured so these things don't happen. And of course, everybody should be thinking about that. But I, I do think that we can, we can, like I've, I had, I've had conversations with lots of people who aren't white people and they have varied views on this. It depends a lot on where they came from and what their experiences were as a young person and so on and so on. It's not to get beyond race. It's to let's all think about race together, not separated white and everybody else.
you know, but there's is a weird racial element and a very odd one in your Tuesday column, uh, which is about Joe Biden meeting uh, Nelson Mandela. And it's obvious that Joe Biden, when he mentioned his meeting of Nelson Mandela, that he was trying to show that uh, he was on the good side and that he was in solidarity with Nelson Mandela. But he did it in an odd way. Well, look, I mean, what more street cred can you have than I went to go see Nelson Mandela and was arrested when, you know, trying to see him. As, uh, it doesn't get much better than that. And, of course, he's trying. He, he has been dependent on the black vote. He's, you know, Saturday, the day that this video comes out, we're taping it the night before, is South Carolina. And that electorate on the Democratic side is about 60% black, 40% white. And so the black vote in South Carolina is largely determinative, and he's trying to get, I think, some street cred. Or maybe, as we suggested with our headline, uh, it's the Mandela effect, where people have these false memories, and they just, and it is possible. I've known people, I have a friend who constantly talks to me about this one event that was, it didn't happen. It didn't happen. And I, and I kind of know where he gets that memory because there was an event like that at a different time and and so on but it's so sometimes these are very innocent things it's not that someone's dreaming up some big lie to tell and who knows with joe biden but we did make the point that he is so all over the map and he just he just doesn't seem with it i don't know how else to say it we've said from day one the one thing I feel like I know about this election is Joe Biden is not going to be president because I just think too many people would say he's not he's not really quite up to it. But he may surge back in in South Carolina and it, it could get to be even a, a messier situation, which we should use, uh, especially because I went on so long about uh, beautiful colors and ugly terms that uh, that we should segue to the next day, uh, Wednesday, we talked about the superdelegate zombie apocalypse. The reason it's so zombie-like is because in 2016, and we get some credit because John Cass at the Chicago Tribune, who's a columnist, great columnist. If you don't read his column, you should. He's become one of my favorite columnists. And not just because last year, or not last year, last presidential election, 2016, I wrote about superdelegates fairly early on because I thought, oh, this could be huge with Hillary and, and Bernie and the fact that Hillary has the entire party apparatus. And of course, in, in 2016, I don't know how they ended up because, of course, you know, at, at the end, it was pretty obvious Hillary has the votes. But, um, but at one point, among the superdelegates who, when I wrote something in 2016, among the superdelegates who had pledged, it was 97% of them for Hillary and 3% for Bernie. So it was way off the charts and it, it could alter the whole election so that Bernie could have gotten a majority of the votes and the delegates by those primary elections and still lost because of these superdelegates, which are party officials, uh, elected officials, you know, your congressmen, if their Democrats are going to get a, a special superdelegate uh, entrance to the convention. And look, these parties, they can, they can, they're private groups. 
which I think we should remember when they want taxpayers to pay for their primaries. Uh, we should start saying, hey, you're private groups. We're not paying anything. You hold your own primaries. But they're free to hold their processes how they want to be very democratic or not very democratic at all. But it just strikes me that if you're the Democratic Party, and if you're constantly talking about democracy, and I recognize sometimes the way they talk about democracy, if they lose an election, it's democracy has been destroyed. So I'm not saying that they have a very you know, healthy, uh, mature view of democracy, but these superdelegates, this is nothing about democracy. This is about holding elections and then holding a little part of the electorate that you control that's the insiders and allowing them to trump what happened at the elections. And of course, the Democrats took some real action. They changed the rules. The superdelegates cannot vote on the first ballot. So now if Bernie or anybody else who's a Democrat wins enough delegates from the actual primaries and caucuses, then they will win and the superdelegates can't trump them. So everything's wonderful except they can vote on the second ballot. And the way everything is breaking, it's looking increasingly like, increasingly like Bernie Sanders is going to have the most delegates. Now, we're saying this before Super Tuesday, it could all be wrong, we're being speculative, but that's how it kind of looks. But it doesn't look like he'd be able to get to 50% of the delegates plus one. And it doesn't look like anybody else is either. Um, and so it's very likely that we are going to have a contested convention on the Democratic side that will go to a second ballot, if not a third or a fourth. But if it goes to a second ballot, all of a sudden these superdelegates come in. And again, I don't know that it's as lopsided as it was in 2016, but again, those superdelegates, because they're party insiders, are not likely to support Sanders. I mean, really, we're seeing on the Democratic side with Sanders almost exactly what we saw on the Republican side. An insurgent candidate, I mean, Sanders doesn't claim to be a Democrat. He caucuses with the Democrats, but he's an independent and he's a Democratic Socialist, communist. Anyway, but he, and he's not a communist. I shouldn't have said that. He's very sympathetic to communists. He thinks that the medical care and the education that they provide should pretty much calm everyone down about the people that they have shot in some, you know, gulag someplace or the, you know, the millions they could starve to death. Uh, you know, everyone's got a complaint. But anyway, he wants us to look at it in a more reasonable, gentle fashion and, uh, and look at the great intentions of these uh, mass murderers. Anyway, but, uh, but, but I kind of digress. Anyway, he's going to have a heck of a time winning unless he gets 50%, and it doesn't look like he's going to. And of course, if the superdelegates then come in on the second ballot and it starts to switch either then or in a later ballot, and it's Michael Bloomberg or it's Pete Buttigieg or it's, it's Biden, <laughs> it's not going to be Biden. Uh, but then all of a sudden, you've got a huge split. So the Democratic dysfunction, small d democratic dysfunction in the large d democratic party is going to bite them in the behind, uh, potentially. And, and it's 
So, so at this point, you've got to kind of look at it and say, you know, maybe not only is it the right thing to do, but you'd have a better process if you actually gave uh, a hoot about democracy. And speaking of democracy, why don't we segue to a place where there is a ruler, and really not just one ruler, he rules at the behest of a whole group of people, a group of 25 people. And those 25 people rule over 1.4 billion people who have no vote and no say. Because if they say anything, they're not supposed to. Just like in the days when there was a monarch on the throne, they will be thrown in prison. They may have their entire life ruined. They may disappear. Um, and of course, they could not say anything, but just be of the wrong religion, the wrong ethnicity. Maybe they're a Muslim Uyghur. And then, of course, they'd be in a concentration camp, re-education, where they'd be maybe kind of brainwashed and just browbeat with all kinds of propaganda day after day after day, in addition to the beatings and some weird kind of things where they are forced to be naked and drilled on different things and so on. And, and these are all, you know, I mean, they're only firsthand reports of people who have fled China. Uh, but on Thursday, I wrote a script called All the Tyranny in China, and uh, one of my favorite songs, Tupelo Honey by uh, Van Morrison, uh, starts out with, you can take all the tea in China, and, and in the end, because he so loves this woman, as I so love my wife, uh, you can dump all that tea in the, in the ocean. So we really focus not on the tea, but on the tyranny. And, and there's a good reason for that. Because I think everyone knows about tea, but somehow we keep forgetting about tyranny. And if you think about, you know, if today, if somehow someone named Hitler took over a country with millions of people, or a billion plus, and started to put millions of people into concentration camps, wouldn't we kind of flip out? Shouldn't we flip out? You know, within, keep our, our wits about us, but let's make one hell of a fuss, right? When I heard uh, Michael Bloomberg months ago said that Xi Jinping is not a dictator, that's the president of China, he used to be term limited after Mao, even the Communist Party of China recognized mm -hmm. how, how terrible it is to have someone just rule over and over decade after decade. And Mao, my goodness, the body count uh, from, the, from the Great Leap Forward before that, the Cultural Revolution, uh, Mao was a mass murderer. Um, but, but we... We look at China, I think, today, and too often, like Bloomberg, people want to make money. We wrote a lot this last year about <clears throat> the MBA, uh, 
all nervous that China, well, they, they stand to make a bunch of money in China. And all nervous that somebody said something about the Hong Kong protesters. And we have done a lot of commentary uh, and some videos about what was happening in Hong Kong, what's still happening in Hong Kong, although with the coronavirus, things have, have kind of settled down on the political front. Uh, what's happened in Taiwan, which is constantly threatened with war and destruction by China, uh, arguably one of the freest and most democratic countries in Asia, uh, constantly under the threats of China. And of course, if you look at the history, it's not a part of China. And, and you, can, you can dispute some of the history and you can look at it different ways. But <laughs> however you look at the history, the people there do not want to be totalitarianized by China, just like Hong Kongers don't. And thank God they have 100 miles of ocean, <clears throat> the Taiwan Strait in between them. But um, China is threatening all of their neighbors. We know what they've done in Tibet. We know what they've done to the Uyghurs. We know what they do to their entire population with the, you know, the social credit where they know everything that they're that a person has purchased they know everything they've done online i mean the things that we are scared the nsa could know about us with their illegal activity the chinese know all that and more they've got cameras everywhere it is it well as i said it would make orwell blush what's going on in china and if you look a little bit deeper you begin to realize the influence that China has in Australia, where there are all these students who have come into universities in Australia who are Chinese students, and that influx of dollars starts to matter. And then they have little groups. They have their Confucius Institute here in the US. They've done the same thing here. I started with Australia, but I, I don't want to, I was going to you know, play fast and loose and then come and tell you about America. But they're doing the same thing here. Uh, and stories in the paper, it's been covered, but the influence that China has, not just in their totalitarian regime, but around the world, because they are using their economic clout to batter people who don't shut up about their brutality and their evil and their complete destruction of freedom. And so Bloomberg, who had said he wasn't a dictator, was asked about it at a debate and comes out and says, well, you know, he's not a dictator. He does have a constituency. Again, these 25 Central Committee Politburo communists who control a country of 1.4 billion dollar, uh, billion dollars, 1.4 billion people with no power, no vote, no say so whatsoever. And then he says, you know, their human rights record is abominable. That was his word. And we've raised the fuss. That was, you know, that which is where, you know, that's what we should do is raise a fuss. But the way he said raise a fuss, it was so obvious. And if you go to our the website, this is commonsense.com, all the tyranny in China, there's a link you can go listen to him say it. I don't know, I don't really want to say the BS word, but it just, that's exactly what it is. This, this guy, it's a bright guy, but he is either blind or something. 
to think that, oh, we're going to raise a little fuss. This is, these are millions, billions of people's lives we're talking about. And it's not just the people in China, it's the people here in America. Are we going to go into the future watching what we say because the Chinese on the other side of the world won't like it? Is our free speech, it's not going to be censored by our government, but somehow in both the private sector and in the government sector, like at universities, we're going to be walking on eggshells because the butchers of Beijing might not like what we have to say. And for Bloomberg, you know, he said, look, we can make a deal with him and so on. And we do, we do have to deal with China. I'm not saying don't ever talk to them. Uh, I'm not suggesting that we uh, do anything specifically except recognize who they are and what they are doing and act accordingly. And the reason that I think it's important to say something is because wherever people are in the political spectrum, if they are conservative, conservative Republicans, if they are liberal Bernie folks, Bernie Sanders came out at 60 Minutes and said, hey, China's a real threat. He would, he would defend Taiwan. Um, so he recognizes the threat China is. And, and all across the board, people want freedom for other people. We want a world at peace with freedom. And we would be willing to sacrifice, I think, a little something, not buy that product that's made in a slave state, to buy a product that's made in a free state, to put pressure on a country that is unfree. We would be willing to do all kinds of things. We have been willing as Americans to defend freedom in other places. Why? Because you know, maybe there was some ulterior motive for somebody in some, you know, penthouse somewhere or at the Pentagon or wherever. It's possible. But the average American who was willing to go fight did it because they're us. We're all in this together. And they want people to be free. So I'm very confident. I, I, I talked to people that I met in Taiwan and, and who are political people and, and have to live every day under the threat of that monster across the Taiwan Strait who constantly says they'll come whenever they can forcefully to take them over. And I, I think about what they're going through. And, and so, but I, I constantly tell them, we have to keep the American people aware of what's happening and engaged because I have no trust whatsoever in our political leaders. Our political leaders will make the best deal for them. And they have, may have all kinds of ulterior motives. They may have donors who want to make money in China. And you'll also, as we have said in, in we wrote uh, two or three things, uh, Tim, it, sound, it seems like on, uh, on the NBA and that whole controversy. And um, we made it very clear, I don't think we can expect our business people, unless we are threatening them with a boycott, 
to do the right thing in China. Business, politicians are likely to do whatever makes them a buck or gives them more power. And that means that we are very vulnerable to communist China. And, and yet the American people can't be so easily bought off. And that's why I think it's so essential that we as people start to pay attention to what our government's doing in foreign policy and what's happening in the world and take it upon ourselves to be aware and to be ready to act. And, and I admit that oftentimes I don't know what to tell you to do. I don't know exactly what we do to go after China, but I can tell you, I like Qingdao beer and I haven't drank it in a long time and I'm not gonna and, until it is made by free people. Um, and maybe that's a tiny thing, but the truth is Hong Kong has some level of freedom today not because they're scared that the U.S. is going to invade and protect Hong Kong. We couldn't do it, and we wouldn't do it. And not because they're afraid to use force. They've used it before. They'll use it again. But because they're afraid of the economic impact against them if they come in like they did in Tiananmen Square to Hong Kong. Same is true uh, for Taiwan. Um, so that does have some impact on the CCP in China. And, uh, and I think we as individual Americans and citizens of the world, wherever you happen to live, we have to find ways to band together to fight for freedom. And it may be as simple as saying, I'm not going to buy that product anymore. People who know me know I'm a Starbucks fanatic. I love their flat white. I get one almost every day. If Starbucks were to do something that were to help tyrants someplace, I'm gonna have to suffer without a flat white every day. I know the American people are willing to make those kind of concessions. Um, and I think people all, all over the globe will. And I think we've got to increasingly think about that and build some structures that allow us to communicate with each other. There is the social media, except places where they hit the kill switch on it. Um, but, but we've got to, as people, connect with each other, organize, and begin to look for ways that we can act to protect our fellow people on this planet. We can't leave it all to the U.S. military. Um, as, as good as the military is at being a military, a lot of what has to be done cannot be done militarily, and that's not the way to do it oftentimes. Even, even if it could be done, that's not the best way to do it. Um, I think people power uh, is capable, not just because we have a, a protest and signs and shout and so on, but as we start to take real actions with our economic cloud, especially, I think that, uh, that, that changes things. And the truth is, even beyond the economic cloud, uh, if people in the world started when the U.S. did something it shouldn't do, if you had protests at every embassy throughout the world, if they started to see that, wow, this, the world opinion uh, is making it, gonna make it awfully difficult on us, all of a sudden, businesses in the US, you know, some CEO calling a congressman going, you know, I'm not, I do a lot of business around the world, and this is not helping. Uh, 
that's the sort of thing we're looking for. And those calls can get made in China too. Uh, now China, I suspect that the uh, CEO might, might uh, just make a suggestion that this isn't so helpful. Probably wouldn't be as forceful as, as a CEO in the United States, because of course the government owns every business in China. Uh, as, as Bernie Sanders, he wouldn't have them own all the means of production, as we said last week, just the major means. So there's the, there's the difference. But um, I do think that, uh, that we have been asleep since Tiananmen Square, for the most part. And, and I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that we ought to boycott everything in China, not deal with them. I, you know, I think we have to kind of take things as, as they come. Uh, I'm not looking for our government to pass draconian things. I am looking for people to start to, to point out and, and to understand that China is a real threat to their neighbors and the whole world and to us here in the United States. If, you know, if, if Cuba had, had the influence in our universities that, that uh, China did, does, uh, I think you'd be hearing a lot about it. And they've, China has been very smart in doing what they're doing and has done it in, in such a way that I think we've been largely asleep. We've got to wake up and then I'm, I'm convinced we can do the things and see the, the ways to, to make a change. Well, that was This Week in Common Sense, starring Paul Jacob. My name is Timothy Verkula. You can find me at, at Workman on most social media, and you can find this podcast where? What you're saying to me is that it's really time for me to tell people that they could get our podcast. This is common sense, you know. And they could get it at Stitcher. That's where they go. They go to stitcher.com? Sure. Or they could go to SoundCloud. Or to SoundCloud. Okay. And that's on the internets, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so go there and, uh, and get the podcast and listen every week. You can take all the tea in China Put it in a big brown bag for me Sail right round all the seven oceans Drop it straight into the deep blue sea Of the first degree, see the sweet, see the sweetest to below, honey. Just like honey, baby, from the sea. You can't stop us on the road to freedom. You can't keep us, cause our eyes can see. Men with insight, men in granite.